Last uh, couple of weeks, a week before, I talked about the walls of Jericho coming down uh, by uh, kind of an amazing, somewhat unusual, uh, sort of strange plan or campaign where Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 through 21, he said, you shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once, you shall do that so for six days. So they did that, and the walls fell flat. And then uh, last week I talked a little bit out of Judges chapter 7 about God calling out Gideon, and he said to uh, Gideon in chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who drank the water a certain way and will give the Midianites into your hands, so let all the other people go, each man to his home. It was a transitional moment. God gave strategy to conquer and to overcome in a complex time. And uh, I want to reference something before I go to 2 Kings 3 and 2 Kings 4. I want to talk to you about some amazing provision, miracles of provision. But I want to read something to you that our friend Dick Mills wrote 31 years ago, 1990. Uh, He talked about the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This was Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. It's an interesting point, and uh, I'll just read what Dick Mills uh, wrote. He was a great evangelist, uh, lived into his 90s, became a really good friend to our family, personal friend, and then also a great friend of the ministry. In fact, Patsy and I were going through a struggle, and he and his wife, Betty, flew here at their own expense, sat in our car in a parking lot for two and a half hours, prayed for us, and ministered to us, and then uh, flew home. So... uh, That's legit. I'm grateful I've had some good friends like that. And here's what he said. Not only, I mean, he was one of the most brilliant minds I had ever run into in uh, spirit-filled Christian life. He said, here the Lord is telling Abraham that occupancy of the land promised to his descendants can only take place when the depravity of the Amorites who live there has reached its zenith. This event took place over 400 years later. The land literally vomited out the Amorites because of their total degeneracy and depravity. It was then that Israel was able to go in and possess the land as their inheritance. Dick Mill says, This event explains why the Lord Jesus has not yet returned to the earth. Over 318 verses in the New Testament point to Christ's second coming. Right now we are seeing all the malignant forces of evil heading towards a culmination of total depravity. I repeat, right now we are seeing all the malignant forces of evil heading towards a culmination of total depravity. How else then would there be a setup for an antichrist? How else then could there be a possibility that all the nations would desire someone other than God and have it be in the form of a human, inferior human model? This action will produce the man of sin, the antichrist. He will be spawned in a garbage can society that reeks of filth and degradation. So that's just the way it goes. At the same time, all this is taking place. A work of righteousness is being developed and orchestrated in God's people. The loving, compassionate nature of Christ is being implanted and formed in each of our hearts. Hate in the world is making the sinners more like Satan. Love in the Christians is making us more like Jesus. The pure and holy wisdom from above is conspicuous 
in the followers of Jesus. Or it ought to be. When the iniquity of latter-day Amorites reaches its saturation point, the righteousness of the bride of Christ will produce the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 19.7. Wow. Now that was written 31 years ago, and it's even more evident now than at any time that I've been alive. I've been a Christian now for 48 years, almost 49 years, and I've never seen anything quite like what we're seeing today. But yet nothing is new under the sun, and so I want to go back to a couple of miraculous moments now in the Old Testament. So let's go to 2 Kings chapter 3, and I will, I will share highlights of this, and then I'll give you the context for it. The context was actually this kind of darkness, this kind of degeneracy and depravity. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel had died. Ahab was a weak leader and Jezebel was a wicked Baal worshiper. He was a pushover and she brought in something called syncretism, which was a blend of Jehovah worship, which Ahab was weakly observing. And she came in with Baal worship or power worship. Baal was the power god and tried to create a blend. God does not like the blend. Call evil evil and good good, but he doesn't like syncretism. Everybody say syncretism. So he didn't want that then, and that's why God raised up Elijah to call down fire on Mount Carmel and purge this thing. But then Ahab and Jezebel died, and uh, the son came into 12 years of leadership in Judah. In chapter 3, verse 1, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel uh, at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. I'm sorry, I flipped that. This was actually during the, the division period where there were two kingdoms and there was division, which is really a drag. And um, so he became the king of Israel while Jehoshaphat was king of Judah and uh, Jehoram re- uh, reigned for 12 years. Now he did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother. And I just explained to you what Ahab and Jezebel did. They did the syncretism. She brought in Baal worship and tried to blend it into Jehovah's worship, and it wasn't pleasing to the Lord, and God purged it. God addressed it. But this guy came in, and he had a different form of evil. He, he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Uh, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And if you look that up, that's in 1 Kings chapter 12. And basically, he brought out golden calves, which were similar to the period of Exodus. And they brought the golden calves out and um, put them in two places, Bethel and uh, I don't remember the other place. But they bowed to them and worshipped them. And this was something that Jehoram had yielded to, and it was, a, it was an evil, and it was a bad situation. Everybody say, nevertheless. The miraculous love and redemptive mercy of God still comes in on the scene. So you can read the whole chapter, but I wanted to give you that highlight so you understood what was going on. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, uh, was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, and King Jehoram uh, went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, 
The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me and fight against Moab? See, they're divided, and yet now they're kind of trying to have a coalescing or have a together and, and to fight. And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people are, are your people. My horses as your horses. So Jehoshaphat had a, a righteousness to him. He's trying to help him out. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way of the wilderness of Edom. Verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days journey, and there was no water. Everybody say no water. water. We'll come back to that in a minute for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Water is critical. We'll get back to that. Then the king of Israel said, alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here? that we may inquire of the Lord by him. And one of the king, king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Everybody say, pour water. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel, and that's Jehoram, uh, and Jehoshaphat, he's the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, those three kings, went down to Elisha. Okay, so now Elisha says to the king of Israel, what do you have to do? What do I have to do with you? What do you want? Go to the prophets of your people. Remember, there was an allegiance with Judah, but not with Israel at this point. And yet, then there becomes an alignment for the sake of overcoming Moab. These kings have to merge together. Does that make sense? And uh, he says, uh, go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, look at verse 14, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So Elisha is pretty firm and he says, But for the fact that Jehoshaphat's here and and I honor him and he's a man of God, I wouldn't even pay any attention to you, Jehoram, because you're doing evil. It's not exactly like Ahab and Jezebel. It's another form of it. It's more like Jeroboam. You got rid of the Baal uh, statue, but you're you're still honoring the golden, golden calves. So there was idolatry there, which doesn't please God. But nevertheless, Elisha said, because Jehoshaphat is here, the king of Judah... I'll come in and I'll help you. But then he says this, verse 15, and I tell this to our musicians. Now bring me a minstrel, bring me a minstrel. And it came about, look at this, when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Boy, that's powerful. Anointed music can be a help, power assist in the move of the Holy Spirit. It can move our hearts toward worship, toward God. God inhabits the praises of his people. When uh, Jehoshaphat had the armies uh, that were all converging on him, he sent the praisers out ahead and there was a breakthrough. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail, they lifted their voices in the midnight hour and worshiped and ministered to the Lord. God apparently inhabited those praises. An earthquake occurred, the chains fell off, the, the prisoners were set free, the Philippian jailer's household was saved, and God caused a tremendous move of the Holy Spirit. Bring me a minstrel, and when the minstrel played, the the hand of the Lord came upon him. David used to play his harp and drive demons away from King Saul. 
Anointed music is different than just carnal worldly music. Anointed music can make a difference. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. Now remember what I said earlier, all these three armies, Judah and uh, Israel and uh, the other kingdom, were all, all these, it must have constituted thousands and thousands of troops that were now at this point parched. There was no water, remember, no water for the army or for the cattle. And so... The word of the Lord comes through this interesting moment. And he says, make the valley full of trenches. These military geniuses are being told to dig holes in the dirt. It doesn't make sense, does it? But yet the word of the Lord comes through Elisha, a tested and true prophet. And he says, for thus says the Lord, verse 17, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water. Now, I don't know whether the valley was like Chesterfield Valley, where the the water level is so high that you could just dig into it. I remember when the beach, we used to dig sand by the beach, remember? And we'd dig a little bit and we'd hit water. And and actually, there is is quite a water table here because we're right next to the Missouri River, right next to Bonham Creek. This is a highly hydrated place. This is a river city. Uh, I don't know about this valley here. I know there was no water, there was no rain, right? Their canteens were empty. But yet, he said, dig these trenches. And the the King James said, dig ditches. I want to tell you, there's an anointing sometimes on digging a ditch. There's a peculiar requirement sometimes. Like you could see with marching around the walls of Jericho. What does that have to do with anything? Well, just it's obedience to the Lord. What about Gideon's army being reduced from 32,000 to 300? But yet they were anointed by God and they, they had a strategy with jars and with uh, torches and with shouting with trumpets in unison. And the Lord used it and shook the armies of the Amalekites. The Lord anointed Joshua and Caleb and the people to march and shout, and the walls came down flat. And in this moment here of history, we see, even in a perplexing, not ideal moment, where Ahab and Jezebel have really soured the atmosphere, and Jehoram has come in and has not done much better. He did evil, he just didn't do the same kind of evil as Ahab and Jezebel. But yet, because Elisha honored Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat carried uh, dignity and anointing at this point. He said, I, I'll, I'll come in and I'll, I'll help you out. Bring me a minstrel. Bring me a minstrel. And when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came on him, and this is what he told him to do. Make the valley full of trenches. Now that's the literal thing that they did. And when they did it, he said, the valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. Thus, this is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. I don't think this is slight in the sight of man. This is a radical miracle. No rain, no water. The army, in a moment, could get so parched. And I'm going to tell you, if you study about what happens when you get dehydrated... One of the things that happens when people get lost in the desert and they don't have water, 
they start losing their mind. And the reason they do is because the physical body kicks into a mode and the, and the layout of our brain starts to protect our vital organs. And it pulls and draws the energies to protect our involuntary actions of heart and breath to keep us sustained. Our, our kidneys start to shut down. Our extremities uh, get kind of weakened. Our hand-eye coordination, different things start to, different properties that we take for granted start to seize. This was a serious moment. And yet, the prophet says, this is a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. And I just want to say, for that matter, with man, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And when we studied in the New Testament about Zacchaeus getting his heart changed, or the woman with the hemorrhage getting healed after 12 years of sickness and struggle, or the little 12-year-old girl being raised, Jairus' daughter, raised from the deathbed, or you know, people's mourning being turned to dancing. We've got, we've got to get back into understanding and itemizing the miracle working power of God. And we've got to actually understand essentially this attitude in chapter 3, verse 18 is correct. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. The God we serve, we're to magnify, we're to understand, not to underestimate how great he is. Come on, whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're dealing with right now, God is God and he always will be God. And since we believe in him, we might as well believe the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and not just stop with a blasé attitude of acknowledgement of existence, but also take on the dimension that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He answers prayer when you bother to pray. If two or more of us gather in his name, there he is in our midst. If we bother to lift up our voices in praise and worship, he apparently likes it and pays attention to it. John chapter 4 says he's looking for worshipers that will worship him in spirit and truth. And in this moment, Jehoram was blessed to have had Jehoshaphat there giving allegiance at this moment where it was a, division, a divided kingdom between Israel and Judah. A divided kingdom? A house divided against itself can't stand. That was not ideal. Nor was the idolatry of, uh, of Jeroboam. Nor was the stupidity of Ahab and Jezebel. But that's what happened. And yet even in that moment, or, or, or as I, what I read to you from Dick Mills about the Amorites in Genesis, the putrefication of it reaches a certain point for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We're in an end time period. They were thousands of years before us. And the things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, you and I might have hope. So I just, I just don't want to see hopelessness right now, do you? I don't want to see people get, get stuck in a moment right now and get, get overwhelmed. So I bind depression and fear and insecurity and the heartache that comes with hope deferred. And I pray God moves in a special way. Now, I wanted to be contextual. I wanted to show you this. And then it said, then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city this was wartime, and this is what these guys had to do. It was conquering time in Jericho. That's what they had to do. It was battle and defense mode in Gideon's day, and that's what they had to do. We fight the good fight of faith. Whatever our situation is, we draw a clear understanding that that God is our God, and he gives strategy. He gives wisdom. He's present to help, even in a non-ideal 
a difficult circumstance. This was a bad and difficult situation, and yet God worked this thing out. Moab was getting ugly on these guys, but God was turning it around. And so you can see through this chapter that in verse 20, it happened in the morning about the time of the offering and sacrifice that, behold, water came by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Everybody say, water came. So see, there was no water, but Elisha used to pour water on Elijah's hands, and then they prayed, they did what God called them to do. They, did, they dug ditches, they dug trenches, and water came. We don't really know how it came. Did it come up through the aquifers of the, the water table? I don't know, did it just fill up supernaturally? I don't know, the issue is that it came. They had water, and they were uh, instantly hydrated. They got their energy back. Remember how I described to you how weird your body gets when you start getting dehydrated? Well, that got reversed, and they came back, and they won the battle. There's another verse that I love so much. Open your mouth wide, and I'll fill it. And, and I remember the first time in San Diego when I was a young kid, I was walking across a big lawn under a stand of trees, and there was a bird that had apparently fallen out of a nest. And when I first saw this thing, it was just all beak. It was just a, a big bul bulbous eyes, gigantic uh, yellow kind of edging on the beak. The beak was going like this. I picked this little thing up, and there was just a little shriveled little body with no feathers on it, little stubs for wings, little funny little curled up feet. And this thing was hungry, and it was saying, feed me, feed me. So uh, I took it home, put it in a shoebox, called the uh, Humane Society, and they told me how to feed that bird. So I fed that bird and nursed that bird and got that bird going. And, and I did that actually with a crow. And uh, a crow fell out of a nest. Uh, somebody gave it to me, said, hey, he, I know you, are in, you like animals. So here you go. And they gave me a crow. So I called the Humane Society. They said, well, you, they're protected. You're not supposed to have them. You're not supposed to do anything with them. You're supposed to let nature take its course. But since you have the bird, here's what you should do. So it's like, I, so it was a protected bird. You're not supposed to keep him. So I took care of him, got bonded to him, and then uh, uh, cried when he left. Everybody say water came. And I, you know, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. Jesus said in John chapter 7, let's go to this. Let's look at this. John chapter 7. This is Jesus in bumped up uh, uh, hundreds of years later. He's in the last day of the feast in Jerusalem, one of their festivals, and he stands in the midst of the crowd and he says uh, in verse 37 of John chapter 7, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, remember how thirsty those three armies were? He said, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, what a great statement. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Boy, that's awesome, isn't it? It's one thing for a physical army to get water to drink. It's another thing for people to get satisfied and get enriched for the course of their life. This is, in fact, what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman at the well, gathering physical water, literal water. And he said, hey, would you get me some water? And she said, 
why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan and a woman? And he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who asked you for water, you'd ask him and he'd give you water that would, would you'd never, once you drank it, you'd never thirst again. She said, give me some of that water because she had to carry. If you look at video or of people in villages and places, say like in Africa, where they don't have the advantage of running water in their village, uh, usually women have to carry these containers they wrap a towel and put it up on their head so it's like a cushion. They pick up the water and they stick it up on their head. And I saw one ladle more water in. And, it, and it, listen, water's heavy. How much is it per gallon in terms of weight? Eight pounds per gallon. And these ladies are carrying, I want to say like five gallon buckets on their head. I don't know what the Samaritan lady was carrying. She had to have had it. That was, those were plastic buckets. So would the, the, the container wouldn't have been heavy but the water surely was. She would have had an earthenware container, which would, of itself would have been probably 12 pounds maybe of clay, and then add, and it was probably close to five gallons. So she's like, yeah, give, you give me water that I don't have to keep carrying back to my village, because this is the only water source and we have to have water to survive. But Jesus wasn't even talking about physical water. He used it as a parallel. And, he, and he, you know, the, there was physical water in 2 Kings chapter 3, where the armies needed to f- literally drink the water. Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, we're looking at miracles. Let's go back to 2 Kings and we'll finish up with just the the rest of this next chapter. Because I think the digging of ditches is, is very, it's literal and then it's also symbolic. It's literal that they literally had to dig ditches or dig trenches in the valley. And I want to tell you, we're in a valley, and there are ditches and trenches in each and every one of our sets of circumstances that need the attention of the living God. We need the miraculous power of God to come in on our relationships, on our thought processes, our decision-making, our choices, our finances, our physical bodies. I mean, we need the healing power of God. When I fell down the stairs in the seventh grade, I needed breath in my lungs, When we had the flood of 93 and it hit our building, I needed the strategy of heaven that I had no prior experience in. And God was faithful to give wisdom. Because if anyone lacks wisdom, you could ask and God will give it to you. Open your mouth wide and he'll fill it. Dig a ditch and he'll fill it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now look at this. So they did this and then then it goes into this next phase in chapter 4, another story. Now, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha. Remember, Elisha was the one helping Jehoshaphat, and he said, bring me a minstrel. I wouldn't pay attention to you, Jehoram, except that Jehoshaphat is here, and there's a, he's an honorable man, so based on that, I can come in here, and there's a, there's a door for the anointing. There's a, there's a hope here for, for Israel and Judah. I'm going to step in here, and I'm going to give me a minstrel. And when he, the minstrel played, the Holy Spirit came on the prophet. Well, here he is, and a lady calls out to him, your servant, my husband, is dead. So she's a widow. And uh, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, 
What do you have in the house? So first of all, Elisha, instead of trying to fill in the gaps, he's asking her, what's the need? What do you want me to do? That's what when when blind Bartimaeus cried out. Remember months ago we were talking in, in the New Testament miracles. Jesus was around the town of Jericho. The blind man heard Jesus was coming and he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They, they said, shut up. We're, we're doing other things. And uh, Jesus said, no, no, I, I, I want to I talk to him. Then they said, be of good cheer. Be it, take courage. Rise up. Take courage. The master wants to speak to you. And uh, Jesus went up to him, just like Elisha went up to this woman. What do you want? Jesus said, what do you want? And he said, oh, that I would receive my sight. The Lord asks us, you know, like, what do you need? What is the open trench of your life that needs to be filled with the living water? In her case, he's saying, well, what do you want me to do? You know, the husband's dead. You're, you're, there's a threat for eviction and uh, your kids being taken away from you. This lady was in a terrible situation. What do you have in your house? She said, well, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Oil was very prominent in this time. They used it in lamps to provide light, and they used it in cooking for nourishment. It was olive oil, and it was important. And it was one of the standard things of a household. I almost think she thought, I just have a jar of oil. And, but Elisha knew something about the goodness of God, having just watched, <laughs> he prophesied, go dig ditches. And those three kings go, all right, let's do it. And they did it, and water came. Everybody's saying water came. So then in verse 3, he said, go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors. Now, I, want, I want you to get this next part. Even empty ones. Everybody say empty vessels. Everybody say uh, ditches and empty vessels. See, the miracles of 2 Kings 3 and 4 are what God will do in a tough situation, in a hostile atmosphere, when people just look to him with faith and are willing to do simple, even strange things in cooperation with him. Marching around Jericho, blowing trumpets, shouting, you know, rallying around for the sword of the Lord and Gideon. I mean, there, there, there's a particular importance when God renders down a time and gets people in a, in a place. Uh, I learned in cooking that you can make a reduction sauce uh, where you just, what it is, is it evaporates a lot of the superfluous uh, liquid and brings down the flavor into such a concentration. Reduction isn't always bad. When God burns the flesh out of us and the carnality out of us and the selfishness out of us and the pettiness out of us, and then he gets us to a place where we hunger and thirst after God and he starts to constant concentrate his love and, and his intentions and his purpose. Just like what Dick Mills said about the, the, the darkness of the Amorites, we see all this, you know, and instead of of cursing the darkness, we need to concentrate on, we need to dig our ditches. We need to find our oil and bring the, and even the empty vessels. He said, bring all the vessels, even the empty vessels. Do not get a few. So he, he says, and, and you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. This is the miracle of the widow's oil. 
The miracle of the filled ditches in chapter 3. The miracle of the continual flow of oil. This, this literally happened in Israel to this family. This woman and her sons. Their husband had died. The sons were distraught. The wife was distraught. And there was threat that these boys were going to be taken by the creditors and used as slaves. And the woman would have been totally isolated and wouldn't have had the presence of those guys there. It was a terrible, harsh moment. But Elisha, God gave him a divine strategy, though it was unique. Look what it was. It was mainly get out there and and bring even the empty vessels and start to pour. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one more vessel. There's not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. What I guess that's saying to me is that had they continued to bring vessels, there might be somebody there pouring oil right now today. In other words, God is God and he's miraculous. And he says, bring me, don't bring me a few. So then that tells us not to have limited thinking. That tells us not to have reduced vision. When this is a period of reduction, it doesn't mean that it's reducing our vision, that it's reducing our faith, that it's reducing our confidence, that's reducing our effectiveness. In fact, the reduction sauce ends up being amazing. On a, on a meal, it can become the savory, beautiful thing. The difference between a bland, basic, little fast food, little dish, and something that where somebody put thought in it, and God is absolutely gourmet with his style, is he not? He gets in a divided kingdom after Ahab and Jezebel went completely flipped out weird. Soft, push over Ahab and bizarre, demonic Jezebel put together a syncretism of, God, of Jehovah worship sort of toned down and facilitating a blending with Baal worship, which was idolatry, which was not pleasing to the Lord. God purged it. And then here comes this son who has another form of evil. Instead of the Baal statue, he goes with the golden calves, but he's still doing idolatry. Bow to these. He puts one in Bethel. Bethel is the place where, you know, God gave a holy indication to Jacob about the the future of of the nation of Israel and the people of the the Jewish people. And yet idolatry was stuck right in there. Even then and even though you see God so merciful to provide water for these armies, even then and even so in this terrible moment for this lady who said, hey man, I don't have anything except this is what I have. What, what do we have sometimes? What does that oil symbolize? The Holy Spirit. What does the water symbolize? In the book of John chapter 7, I just read it to you. The Holy Spirit. So there's a literal a context to this, a historical event of this that we have to pay attention to. And in order for us to make sure it says what it says, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. We see it in its context. We see it in its historical moment. We see who it's talking about, what the purposes are, what the time period is. But then in addition to that, we see spiritual parallels and we see spiritual patterns. Our God is a miracle-working God, is he not? Didn't he provide for Jehoshaphat? Even for Jehoram, 
the, the king of Israel who was at that point doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet God in his mercy took care of the situation. Who can say hallelujah to that? So I want you guys to take your arms and stretch a little bit. Don't pump, bump into anybody. Stay six, six feet apart and so, so forth. But, 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 but just stretch a little bit. Just reach out. Just kind of pull your head back a little bit. Hold your head up. Proud chest. Kind of throw your chest, stomach in, chest out. Kind of lift up your head. Lift up your hands. Stretch a little bit more. See, how long are you going to have us do this, Pastor Jeff? Just, just reach out and believe and receive. You feel like your life is a trench or you're entrenched or it's like a ditch. Trust God for living water. Is your marriage going through trouble? Believe God for God to touch that situation. Do you have a wayward prodigal? Believe God God will move on him or her and bring him back into revelation. Do you need a breakthrough of your finances? Man, I pray for multiplication back at your life. Man, you've tithed, you've given offerings, you believed God. I pray it returns after many days. You need healing in your body? By Jesus' stripes, we are healed. Open your mouth wide and he'll fill it. If you need wisdom, he'll give it to you. What do you have in your house? Just a jar of oil. What do you have in your life? I, well, I'm saved. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Good thing. You then have access to the throne of grace. You have God's Holy Spirit on you. You have a miracle working God that is inclined toward you. He hears and he answers your prayer. But the iniquity of the Amorites just keeps swelling up. Baal worship was crazy in that day. This divided kingdom, it was crazy in that day. One of my least favorite parts of the history of America is the division. Because division is not pleasing to the Lord. God wants, he said, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. I was listening to a rabbi and he was teaching on the word shalom. He said the word shalom is a greeting in Israel and in the, amongst the Jews. It means hello and it means goodbye, but more importantly, it means peace. But not only does it means, mean peace, remember we're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? It actually means completeness and wholeness. It means completeness and wholeness. So when we pray... When we pray for peace, we're praying for completeness and wholeness. When they called Elisha and he said, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You know, you're wicked. And he go, go get your deal with your Israel, with your, you know, just having had all this craziness. And then, you know, and, and he said, no, well, but, but because of Jehoshaphat, I, I, I'll help you. Bring me a minstrel. Boy, thank God for minstrels that are anointed. Thank God for real anointed music. It, it was part of the Jesus movement, and we need it now. We need that. We need it. We need that anointing. God anoints digging ditches. God anoints a silly little seemingly inconsequential item like a jar of oil. He said, just keep pouring it out. He anoints the, the praises of his people. He anoints your prayer. And I t- I'll tell you, when you don't feel the reinforcement, I've noticed we walk by faith and not by sight. We are sentient beings. We have feelings. We all have different personalities, but we all have feelings. And we all have sensory, the things that stimulate our eyes and our ears and so forth and, and, and our feelings. But, but yet, often and, and almost always in these stories, there wasn't a whole lot of a rush of exhilaration. It was like, dig ditches? Okay, that's what the guy prophesied. 
Uh, bring me a jar of oil. Okay, that's all I've got. Pour it out. Bring the empty jars. You know, let me say prophetically what that is or the parallel of that. I pray for my neighbors. You pray for your neighbors? We've got this clause in the Bible that we're supposed, you know, we're supposed to be good to our neighbors. So we better pray for each other. And I'm praying for all my neighbors. And who are our neighbors? Everybody around us. Pray for our enemies, who are often our neighbors. I mean, look at the neighboring country with, with, with Judah and with Israel. And he goes, hey man, can you help me? The Moabites are coming after us. And he goes, and then Jehoshaphat shows his kind of integrity. He goes, listen, your God is our God. And you know, what we have, you, you know, the Jehoshaphat stepped up, didn't he? And, uh, and then Elisha came in on the scene. And, but more importantly, God stepped up and water came. Everybody say water came. Water came by the way of Edom and God supplied. Hallelujah. Elisha used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. It's a seemingly inconsequential act of service. But those things matter to the Lord. There needs to be more of that in the culture of the kingdom. There's not enough honor in our world. It's very, very depleted right now. People don't even respect you know, the, the office of a, of a leader of the free world. It's like, just at least respect the office of the leader of the free world, just so you can pray for whomever takes that office. Even Jehoram came in on this scene, and God worked with it, because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God even worked during Ahab and Jezebel's day, because that's just the way God is. Aren't you glad God doesn't take a vacation from being God? Let's all stand up on our feet. Tonight we just looked at the, the, the miracle of digging ditches and the miracle of pouring oil. Boy, there's so much to this. There's so much to this. Because there's so many empty vessels. There's so many people that are entrenched or, 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 or so many ditches, that, so many potholes in lives. But yet I believe God's going to fill them. I believe that God, God is bringing people, listen, Be like this lady and her two sons. Go out and find empty vessels, even the empty ones. This church needs a fresh surge of broken, empty people. That's what we need. We need these seats filled with people that are lost and need to be saved. I prophesied in this church a few years ago that we would be outnumbered by new believers. So here we go. Here we go. You ready? So how do you share? Where you, you, you got sunglasses on, a ball cap, a mask, a scarf, a parka, a hoodie. And then, you know, are you smiling at me or are you sticking your tongue out at me? Well, there, there will be a time where we'll be able to resume. But then according to the scriptures, it's going to get weirder. So we just have to factor that in and figure this out and walk this out. It's, it's, it's hate in the world is making the sinners more like Satan. Love in the Christians is making us more like Jesus, or it ought to. Put your hand on your heart. Raise your hand. Say, God, I want to see my neighbors get saved. 
I want to see our city become a praise in the earth. Harvest amongst the lost. Reviving and stirring amongst the saved. We dig a ditch and you'll fill it. We open our mouths wide and you fill it. We reach out with hands of faith. And when we pray, we believe, we receive. Now, if you're not a Christian, ask Jesus to come into your life and be your Lord, be your Savior. Honor Him. Open up to Him. Identify with Him. Submit to Him. Turn from your sin. Trust Him to come into your life right now, and He will. Lay your hands on yourself like this. Say, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Stir up the gifts. Stir up the fire. Stir up my calling. Help me to fulfill the destiny that you have for me. In Jesus' name, amen.